Part two of an introductory essay by John Hayes Hammond, Jr. to the Journal of Submarine Commander von Forstner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Journal of Submarine Commander von Forstner by Georg Gunther Freiherr von Forstner, translated by Anna Crafts Codman, with commentary by John Hayes Hammond, Jr. Part Two of the Introductory Essay, The Challenge of Naval Supremacy. Obviously, the first method of handling the submarine problem would be to bottle the German undersea craft in their bases. There has been a number of proposals as to how best to accomplish this, it has been stated that the English Navy has planted mines in channels leading from Zeebrugge and other submarine bases, but it is necessary only to recall the exploits of the E-11 and the E-14 of the British Navy at the Dardanelles to see that it would not be impossible for the Germans to pass in their U-boats through these minefields into the open sea. It will be remembered that the E-11 and the E-14 passed through five or more minefields, thence through the Dardanelles into the Sea of Marmora, and even into the Bosporus under seemingly impossible conditions. Yet in spite of the tremendous risks that they ran, these boats continued their operations for some time, passing up as far as Constantinople, actually shelling the city, sinking transports, and accomplishing other feats which have been graphically described in the stories of Rudyard Kipling. And again, if the minefields were placed in close proximity to their bases, it would be comparatively easy for German submersibles of the lake type, possessing appliances to enable divers to pass outboard when the vessel is submerged, to go out and cut away the mines and thus render them ineffective. Nets are also used to hinder the outward passage of the submarine. These nets can likewise be attacked and easily cut by devices with which modern U-boats are equipped. The problem of placing these obstacles is a difficult one, in view of the fact that the ships so engaged are harassed by German destroyers and other enemy craft. Outside of Zeebrugge, shallow water extends to a distance of about five miles from the coast and it has been suggested that a large number of aircraft carrying bombs and torpedoes should be used to patrol systematically the channel leading from that port to deep water with the intent of attacking the submersibles as they emerge from this base. It is ridiculous to suppose that the Germans would not be able to concentrate an equally large number of aircraft to be supported also by anti-aircraft guns on the decks of destroyers and by the coast defenses. We have not yet won the supremacy of the air, and it must inevitably be misleading to base any proposition on the assumption that we are masters of that element. The problem of bottling up the submersibles is enormously difficult, because it necessitates operations in the enemy's territory where he would possess the superiority of power. I believe that the question of operations against the submarine bases is not a naval, but a military one, and one which would be best solved by the advance of the western left flank of the Allied armies. 
The second method is to attack the submarines with every appliance that science can produce. In order to attack the submarine directly with any weapon, it is necessary first to locate it. This is a problem presenting the greatest difficulty, for it is by their elusiveness that the submarines have gained such importance in their war on trade. They attack the more or less helpless merchant ships and vanish before the armed patrols appear on the scene. Almost every suitable appliance known to physics has been proposed for the solution to the problem of submarine location and detection. As the submarine is a huge vessel built of metal, it might be supposed that such a contrivance as the Hughes induction balance might be employed to locate it. The Hughes balance is a device which is extremely sensitive to the presence of minute metallic masses in relatively close proximity to certain parts of the apparatus. Unfortunately, on account of the presence of the saline seawater, the submersible is practically shielded by a conducting medium in which are set up eddy currents. Although the seawater may lack somewhat in conductivity, it compensates for this by its volume. For this reason, the induction balance has proved a failure. But another method of detecting the position of a metallic mass is by the use of the magnetometer. This device operates on the principle of magnetic attraction, and in laboratories, on stable foundations, it is extremely sensitive. But the instability of the ship on which it would be necessary to carry this instrument would render it impossible to obtain a sufficient degree of sensitiveness in the apparatus to give it any value. The fact that the submersible is propelled underwater by powerful electric motors begets the idea that the electrical disturbances therein might be detected by highly sensitive detectors of feeble electrical oscillations. The seawater in this case will be found to absorb to a tremendous extent the effects of the electrical disturbance. Moreover, the metallic hull of the submersible forms in itself an almost ideal shield to screen the outgoing effect of these motors. Considerable and important development has been made in the creation of sensitive sound-receiving devices to hear the propeller vibrations and the mechanical vibrations that are present in a submersible, both of which are transmitted through the water. There are three principal obstacles to the successful use of such a device. When the submersible is submerged, she employs rotary and not reciprocating prime movers, being in consequence relatively quiet when running under water and inaudible at any considerable distance. The noises of the vessel carrying the listening devices are difficult to exclude, as are also the noises of the sea, which are multitudinous. Finally, the sound-receiving instruments are not highly directive, hence are not of great assistance in determining the position of the object from which they are receiving sounds. To locate the submersible, aerial observation has been found useful. It is particularly so when the waters are clear enough to observe the vessel when submerged to some depth, but its value is less than might be supposed in the waters about the British Isles and northern Europe, where there is a great deal of matter in suspension which makes the sea unusually opaque. The submersible, however, when running along the surface with only its periscope showing, is more easily detected by aircraft 
than by a surface vessel. Behind the periscope there is a characteristic small wake, which is distinguishable from above, but practically invisible from a low level of observation. Many seaplanes are operating on the other side for the purpose of locating enemy submersibles and reporting their presence to the surface patrol craft. In order to overcome the disadvantages of creating the periscope wake which I have mentioned, it is reported that the Germans have developed special means to allow the U-boats, when raiding, to submerge to a fixed depth without moving. To maintain any body in a fluid medium in a static position is a difficult matter, as is shown in the instability of aircraft. One of the great problems of the submersible has been to master the difficulties of its control while maintaining a desired depth. The modern submersible usually forces itself under water while still in a slightly buoyant condition by its propellers and by the action of two sets of rudders or hydroplanes which are arranged along its superstructure and which tend to force it below the surface when they are given a certain inclination. But should the engine stop, the diving rudders or hydroplanes would become ineffective and because of the reserve buoyancy in the hull the vessel would come to the surface in order to maintain the vessel in a state of suspension under water without moving it would be necessary to hold an extremely delicate balance between the weight of the submarine and that of the water which it displaces variations in weights are so important to the submersible that as fuel is used Water is allowed to enter certain tanks to compensate exactly for the loss of the weight of the fuel. To obtain such an equilibrium, an automatic device controlled by the pressure of the water, which, of course, varies with the depth, is used. This device controls the pumps, which fill or empty the ballast tanks, so as to keep the relation of the submersible to the water which it displaces constant under which condition the vessel maintains a fixed depth. The principle of this mechanism is, of course, old, and was first embodied in the Whitehead torpedo, which has a device that can be set so as to maintain the depth at which it will run practically constant. With the addition of a telescopic periscope, which can be shortened or extended at will, it will be possible for the U-boat to lie motionless, with only the minute surface of the periscope revealing her position. To attack the submersible is a matter of opportunity. It is only when one is caught operating on the surface, or is forced to the surface by becoming entangled in nets, that the patrol has the chance to fire upon it. Against this method of attack, modern submersibles have been improving their defenses. Today they are shielded with armor of some weight on the superstructure and over part of the hull. They are also equipped with guns up to five inches in diameter, and affording as they do a fairly steady base, they can outmatch in gunplay any of the lighter patrol boats which they may encounter. One of the important improvements which have been made has resulted in the increased speed with which they now submerge from the condition of surface trim. A submersible of a thousand tons displacement will carry about five hundred tons of water ballast. 
the problem of submerging is mainly that of being able rapidly to fill the tanks on account of the necessity of dealing with large quantities of water in the ballast system the european submersibles are equipped with pumps which can handle eight tons of water per minute again the speed which the electrical propulsion system gives the vessel on the surface greatly increases the pressure which the diving rudders can exert in forcing the submersible under water this effect may be so marked that it becomes excessive and Souter emphasizes the point that vessels at high speed when moving under water may on account of the momentum attained submerge to excessive depths to eliminate this tendency there is a hydrostatic safety system which automatically causes the discharge of water from the ballast tank when dangerous pressures are reached thus bringing the submersible to a higher level where the pressure on the hull will not be so severe from this it follows that the opportunity of ramming a submersible or of sinking it by gunfire is greatly minimized since the vessel can disappear so rapidly a great deal has been attempted with nets fixed nets extend across many of the bodies of water around the british isles their positions doubtless are now very well known to the germans the problem of cutting through them is not a difficult one moreover the hull of the submersible has been modified so that the propellers are almost entirely shielded and encased in such a way that they will not foul the lines of a net there has also been a steel hawser strung from the bow across the highest point of the vessel to the stern so that the submersible can underrun a net without entangling the superstructure some nets are towed by surface vessels the process is necessarily slow and to be effective the surface vessel must know the exact location of the submersible towing torpedoes or high explosive charges behind moving vessels has been developed by the italian navy but the chances of hitting a submersible with such devices are not very great bomb dropping from aeroplanes can be practiced successfully under exceptional conditions only in view of the fact that such bomb dropping is exceedingly inaccurate and that the charges carried are relatively small this form of attack ordinarily would not be very dangerous for the submersible surface craft have also employed large charges of high explosives which are caused to detonate by hydrostatic pistons upon reaching a certain depth patrol boats carry such charges in order to overrun the submersible drop the charges in its vicinity and by the pressure of the underwater explosion crush its hull since the pressure of an underwater explosion diminishes rapidly as the distance increases from the point of detonation it would be necessary to place the explosive charge fairly close to the hull of the submersible to be certain of its destruction to accomplish this it would seem that the ideal combination would be the control of an explosive carrier by radio energy directly from an aeroplane thus we would have a large explosive charge under water where it can most effectively injure the submersible controlled by the guidance of an observer in the position best suited to watch the movements of the submerged target the third method by which to frustrate the attack of the submersible is to give better protection to the merchant marine itself 
while a great deal of ingenuity is being concentrated on the problem of thwarting the submersible but little common sense has been used while endeavoring to devise intricate and ingenious mechanisms to sink the submersible we overlook the simplest safeguards for our merchant vessels today the construction of the average ship is designed to conform to the insurance requirements this does not mean in any way that the ship is so constructed as to be truly safe thousands of vessels that are plying the seas today are equipped with bulkheads that are absolutely useless because they do not extend high enough to prevent the water from running from one part of the ship to another when the ship is partially submerged then again the pumping system is so arranged as to reach the water in the lower part of the hull when the ship is up by the head should the ship be injured in the forward part and sink by the head these pumps would be unable to reach the incoming water before her condition had become desperate there is a vessel operating from new york today worth approximately a million dollars and if she were equipped with suitable pumps which would cost about a thousand dollars her safety would be increased about forty per cent her owners however prefer running the risk of losing her to expending a thousand dollars if the merchant vessels were made more torpedo-proof it would be an important discouragement to the u-boat commander during the past two years of the war nineteen battleships have been torpedoed and out of this number only three have been sunk showing that it is possible by proper construction to improve the hull of a ship to such an extent that it is almost torpedo-proof while it may not be practicable on account of the cost to build merchant vessels along the lines of armed ships nevertheless much could be done to improve their structural strength and safety and since speed is an essential factor in circumventing torpedo attack new cargo carriers should be constructed to be as fast as is feasible so radically have conditions changed that today we have a superabundance of useless dreadnought power the smaller guns of some of these vessels and their gun crews would be far more useful on the merchant vessels than awaiting the far-off day when the german fleet shall venture forth again the submersible must be driven below the surface by a superiority of gunfire on the part of the merchant marine and its patrols in this way the submersible would be dependent upon the torpedo alone a weapon of distinct limitations in order to use it effectively the submersible must not be more than from eight hundred to two thousand yards from its target and must run submerged at reduced speed thus greatly lessening its potentiality for destruction today submersibles are actually running down and destroying merchant vessels by gunfire if merchant vessels carried two high-speed patrol launches equipped with three-inch guns of the Davis non-recoil type, and these vessels were lowered in the danger zone as a convoy to the ship, such a scheme would greatly lessen the enormous task of the present patrol. In the event of gunfire attack by a submersible, three vessels would be on the alert to answer her fire instead of one, 
an important factor in discouraging submersibles from surface attack. The future of the submarine campaign is of vital importance. The prospect is not very cheerful. Leboeuf states that at the beginning of the war, Germany had not over 38 submersibles. This statement may be taken with a grain of salt. The Germans do not advertise what they have. It is probable, however, that today they have not more than 200 submersibles in operation. Over 4,000 patrol boats are operating against this relatively small number. And yet, sinkings continue at an alarming rate. It is estimated that Germany will be able to produce a thousand submersibles in the coming year and man these vessels with crews from her blockaded ships. This will be a tremendous addition to the number she has now in operation. The greater the number of submersibles she has in action, the greater the area the submarine campaign will cover. The number of patrol vessels will have to be increased in direct proportion to the area of the submarine zone. Since a large number of patrol boats has to operate against each submersible, it will be seen that a tremendous fleet will have to be placed in commission to offset a thousand submersibles. Thus the problem becomes increasingly difficult, and the protection of the trade route will be no more thoroughly affected than it is today unless we overwhelm the enemy by a tremendous fleet of destroyers. End of the introductory essay.